Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and Illinois and their communities. For our return listeners, welcome back, and thank you so much for your continued support. If this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're glad you found us. All of this is made possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners like EvolveHer, which is a centralized digital hub that curates best-in-class resources, tools, and events to help advance women professionally and personally. And to 1871, our regular podcast home. It is the premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. And I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of Seed Strategies, and I'm also your host. I am thrilled to welcome State Senate Majority Leader and Chair of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus and my friend Kimberly Whiteford as our guest for today's episode. But first, before we get into the incredibly important work she is doing and helping to lead right now, I want to talk about the programming direction we're taking the broadcast in over the next six months. And I think unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you know that the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted very deep cracks and inequities throughout our society. And most notably, the continued injustices experienced by Black Americans, regardless of whether it's our criminal justice, public education and healthcare systems, systems of government, access to capital, and even urban planning. And systemic racism and oppression is embedded in every layer of our society and this country. And this fact really can no longer be denied or ignored. And outside of the pandemic, of course, the more recent incidents of injustice and police brutality around the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, the shooting of Jacob Blake, and others are very painful reminders of the systemic racism that exists today. So to further bring these inequities and their impact to life, we're dedicating the next six months of programming around the anti-racism space. Laws that have been created that disproportionately impact Black men and women, and the data doesn't lie. And there is so much to cite, but these are just a few stats. At the end of 2018, the Black imprisonment rate was more than five times the rate among white Americans, despite the fact that African Americans make up only 14% of the population in this country. Black women historically have had the highest maternal mortality rates, and in 2018, they died two and a half times more often than white women. And right here in Chicago, only 45% of black students attend the city's top-rated school, while 91% of white students do. It's for these reasons and more that we want the broadcast to serve as a platform to give voice to those like Senator Lightbird, who are currently at the forefront of working for change and can also put context around how racism has impacted the many systems that comprise our society. So our episodes will offer a chance for listeners to hear about ideas, solutions, and hopes around ending racism while enlightening those still learning about white supremacy, white privilege, and racism. And over the next six months of programming, we'll include conversations around healthcare, criminal justice, the outcome of the presidential election and its impact on these issues, and the voices of black youth 
who are at the forefront of the current movement, among others. Now, back to our star of the show today, who is kicking off this programming, Senate Majority Leader Kimberly Whiteford. She's someone who has actually always been at the forefront of these issues, which has demonstrated the work she's achieved as a senator in promoting high-quality education, advocating for quality health care, providing support for working families, and fighting for equal pay for women and African Americans. And at the time of her election in 1988, she was the youngest African-American woman ever elected to the Illinois Senate. And today, she's a senior ranking official and serving in a very pivotal position during one of the most important moments in time facing our state and the nation as chair of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. The caucus recently introduced their policy agenda for the fall veto session designed to address systemic racism and oppression throughout our state government, our laws, and policies. And they're specifically focusing reforms in four pillars of policy. There's criminal justice reform, violence and police accountability. There's education and workforce development. And then economic access, equity and opportunity. And then healthcare and human services. So I'm really grateful to have Senator Lightford on the show. I consider her a friend as much as someone I really look up to for all she's done to champion causes to support women, children, and marginalized communities in Illinois. And she was, I'd say, a true progressive before the term became a part of our everyday vocabulary. So I'm really excited to have her in this conversation to help unpack all of the work that the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus is leading and what their hopes are for the future. So, Senator, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Becky. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to kick off this type of programming to identify solutions and have hope and and come up with ideas. And you're right, I was this lonely progressive and looked at as the angry black woman. If I'd known there was a such thing, I would have said, oh no, I'm not angry, I'm just progressive. So I'm glad we're catching up <laughs> with times. <laughs> oh, and I, I, wanna, I wanna learn so much about that too, because I mean, I feel like I'm also gonna learn something today, even though I know that I feel, that, that I know you very well in your history. But before we start talking about all this, you know, we've been kicking off um, the podcast since the pandemic started by asking our guests, like, how they and their families have been doing during this crisis. You know, you're in a unique spot being on the front lines of all of this. I know you recently took your daughter house shopping for college and uh, or renting for college. So, you know, how have you been doing? Well, you know, one of my flaws is that I'm brutally honest. So I will start by telling you, I've been eating too much. I, I've got this nervous energy <laughs> and I've put on too many pounds. So I started fasting oh. yesterday. So um, good for I'm you. Thank you. I'm hoping to to rid this um, sugar craving that I have. But um, in spite of that, it's been it's it's been quite the balancing act. Um, and as we continue to see the impact of COVID-19 and still have uh, to deal with racism that's built into inequities and police brutality, our criminal justice system, education, healthcare, all those areas that you named, economic access and more, there are days, you know, when I do feel empowered to take on these challenges, but then there are some days I am forced to just 
I just had to catch my breath the other day, like when Breonna Taylor's killers were not indicted and the the felony charge that wasn't even related to her shooting. I I was a little overwhelmed with that and, and I didn't know how to quite respond right away, but it's, it's those type of moments that means more and more of an injustice for the women in my family and for Black women across our country. And it just really, you know, made my heart, you know, really heavy, just really heavy. So I, it's been a roller coaster. It's, I've been on a roller coaster. Yeah, I think everyone can agree with you that 2020 is kind of the year from hell <laughs> on so many levels. I mean, it's even hard to have some levity during a time like this, but I know, you know, it's one of the reasons why you wanted to dive deeply into the work that the caucus is doing. But before we even talk about the work you're helping to lead with your caucus, like tell our listeners a bit who may not know as much about you as I do about how you got your start in the Senate and your journey to becoming Senate leader and now as a longest serving member of the Senate. I came home from graduate school and I was recruited by my state representative and my uh, local mayor of Maywood at the time. He was the first African-American mayor in Maywood. And then there was a, a community organization that was birthed out of the civil rights movement and um, Fred Hampton's um, murder. Title PLCCA, the executive director, Bishop Claude Porter, the three of those guys. Um, they first said, you know, you should run for trustee. We need someone young like you. I'd gone back to my high school and I was just a volunteer. Wherever I could volunteer and help out with the young ladies <laughs> in the community, that's what I was doing. So I was recognized for that. And then I go, oh, well, what's a trustee? I'd never been interested in government because I, I never liked history. I always felt like it wasn't teaching truth. And so I just never... Yeah was captivated by history whatsoever. And so I, you know, he explained it to me, you know, you can help the youth, you can help, you know, the seniors, you can do these things. And I thought, oh, perfect. That would be great for me. So I first ran for trustee. And then a year later, my sitting senator was Earlene Collins. She retired from the Senate and ran for Cook County Commissioner. Therefore, her seat became open after 20 years and it was a really crowded race and the same gentleman called me up at work and they're like trustee Lifeford, you should run for the senate and i'm like what <laughs> you know <laughs> why and not so, yeah well i did think what do i have to lose I'm, i at this time i'm 28 years old i you know i had a year and a half as a, a local elected official i just earned a master's degree the first in my family to earn a degree. I had been outside of the community and was exposed to that there was so much to offer that life had to offer. And so I thought, well, why not? I have zero to lose. And then I went forward. So um, I was elected in November of 98. And I became the youngest senator ever elected in the state. And there was only one other African-American woman who was Margaret Smith. And there had mm -hmm. to be a there had to be at least a 50 year difference between the two of us. And so, um, yeah, so that was a little, a little different and difficult. And, you know, as I reflect now, 
being young and a woman and black, I had three strikes coming in the door and I was not prepared for that. I just thought mm -hmm. that if you do a good job, if you work hard, if you are committed to the cause and stay focused, um, you do fine. I, I just didn't understand politics and I didn't understand the inside politics and what would happen in Springfield. And there was so much more to just serving your community that you had to deal with as a legislator. Mm -hmm. And being so young, you know, I, I was just often alone. And so I just, from that experience, I think I, I remained to myself quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. I did my work, you know, I worked hard for my constituents. Um, they reelected me in 2002 and I won pretty, pretty hugely in 2002. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so I thought, oh my God, I am supposed to be here. Because for a moment, <laughs> I, I questioned, why am I here? You know, sure. you know. Well, you had a rough start. I mean, you were young. You were mm -hmm. a young black woman. Mm -hmm. There were, it was a much more male dominated culture. Uh, mm -hmm. And just a different culture in general, even then compared yeah. to today. Like, how did, okay. you got a lot of big things done, though. Like, how did you find your your niche in negotiating and bringing people together to get some of that work done? Well, I, I, I got some really good advice. Linda Hawker, she was the secretary of the Senate. Yeah. And um, Vince DiMuzio was the dean of the Senate, is what we called him from downstate mm -hmm. Illinois. And Vince was on the education committee. And uh, Miss Hawker, you know, they all call me Kiddo. Kiddo was my nickname, which, Aww. you know, I, I look on it now and go, oh, that's fine. But back then, I wanted to be called Senator like all the rest of them were. Right. Called. Especially considering <laughs> it was I. but at the same time, you are a yeah, Senator. <laughs> right. Like, I really worked hard for this. It wasn't, I wasn't appointed, you know, and I worked hard as everyone else here. And then I did my due diligence and I read up all their resumes and their bios so I can find out about them. And I felt like I fit in really well, actually. And so, um, <laughs> so she said, kiddo, you know, what is it that you like to do? And I'd share with her when I was working on my master's, I was at the Illinois Department of Corrections. And I learned then the challenges with the juveniles and um, the crime rate that was increasing in their population. I would attend statewide youth serving entities on behalf of the director of corrections, like the Boys Clubs of America, Big Brother, Big Sister, mm -hmm. Illinois Association of Park Districts, Illinois Recreation and Dance. I just attend all those things. And I said, you know, I love education and youth development. Education is what allowed me to arrive here in the legislature at such a young age. I knew it was important for me to have it. And I always depended on it. It's like I leaned on education whenever I needed an out. Oh, time to go back to school. It was just always the thing for me to do. And I figured um, that if I could encourage other young black girls that they could, too could have a chance. So I told her, I wanted to focus on education and youth development. So she said, here's my advice. Um, 
don't spread yourself out so thin trying to accommodate everything. People are going to be pulling on you and they're going to want you to know everything. She said, but you need to become an expert in something. And you love education, go talk to Vince DiMuzio. Go talk to him. <laughs> and so I did. I, I went to his office, brand new, on his door. And I said, hey, Senator DiMuzio, I'd like to become an expert in education. And I got his attention with that. And he said, okay, when we get to committee, you come sit right next to me and I'll show you everything and bring you up to date with all that I know. Mm -hmm. And I just went right up under his mentorship in education and became the vice chair, then eventually the chair of K through 12 before it was um, in higher education. We used to have just one education committee. So before it was split into the two, I was chairman. And so how did this journey just then segue one day, your Senate Majority Leader, your chair of the Legislative Black Caucus? You know, you certainly, you certainly, you know, earned it. What is that? I mean, when you look back on that now, what does that mean to you, you know, today to have, have reached really the kind of the, the pinnacle? You know, Becky, I don't know that I recognize it. You know, I had my mother just say to me the other day, she says, you, you really don't know who you are, do you? And I'm like, well, what do you mean, mom? <laughs> <And> <laughs> I've kind of just remained grounded, just remained Kim from the community. They call me the, yeah. I'm the homegirl. Home That's what everyone calls me. I still have my grammar school childhood friends that I love, like my sisters and brothers. And I just think that just remaining true to myself, I was unwilling to compromise my beliefs and I didn't want to compromise my constituency that I was working for. And so I just followed the instructions, the advice that Ms. Harker gave me, become good at something. And I just honed right. into education. I try to stay out of the politics as much as possible. I don't like getting involved in, in other people's activities. If it's not pertaining to me, you will not yeah. hear my you will not hear my name in it. And then as it relates to the Black Caucus, when I first arrived, our very own President Obama was the freshman legislator, and we were in the minority. <laughs> I became Senate Dem number 27, and he recommended me to be the chairman of the Senate Black Caucus. And so my wow. first... Eight my first eight years um, as a freshman legislator, I was the chairman of the Senate Black Caucus. Um, okay, I just learned something new. I had no idea that you <laughs> were that. And two, I had no idea that then Senator Obama had asked you to step into that or encouraged you to. That's amazing. Yeah, he did. He actually nominated me. It happened so quickly. Oh. I'm thinking, what are they doing? And I nominate Kimberly and someone. <laughs> thinking and, they, and I left found it. Oh, you're the chairman. I was like, oh, my God. Okay. And so I quickly pulled my Robert Rules of Order book because I was really to the book, right? I, I was so organized. Right. I'm reading Robert Rules of Order so I could be prepared, you know, and <laughs> and use my trustee experience since I'd been chairman right. of some. Well, because they yeah. don't like give you like a manual. Hi, Kai, now you're chair of the Senate Black Caucus. Here's what you need to do. You kind of like yeah, go no with it. Yeah, no one tells you anything. You've got to figure it out. And I was just so young and naive and determined to just do a really good job. 
And so after I spent that time there, I fell just into the role of being a member and being engaged with the caucus. And then six years ago, I became the joint caucus chair. And so I've spent most Mm -hmm. of my um, time in the legislature, a part of the Black Caucus, because um, there was a reason why the Black Caucus was created, apparently, in 1967. And I wanted to be a part of what that movement was about and why and how we can always work to improve the people that we, we represent. And so I've always wanted to play a role in that. Well, here you are today, head of the Black Caucus for both chambers, and you guys decided to take on some very serious work during a very unique moment in time. Like, like when and why did these conversations start with the Black Caucus to unify all of your collective efforts to really take a deep dive into these policy pillars that I mentioned earlier to address all of these inequities facing the communities that you all serve? So it was kind of like during this coronavirus pandemic, we're like in the midst of all of the uncertainty, the loss, you know, all the economic devastation, the loss in business, all of our essential workers risking their lives. We had to return to Springfield to pass a budget. And shortly after we passed the budget, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis the day after we actually sent the state budget to the governor. And so when we returned home from Springfield, the the world was watching and the, the world was uniting behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And even though there were periods of unrest, the sentiment continues among so many of us. And I don't think for a moment that there was a conscious decision that was made to decide what we were going to do or that we were going to do something, but it was more of a question of how were we going to do it? And since then, we've hosted um, several days of actions across our communities and downstate. Mm -hmm. We heard from experts on racial justice during our Black Caucus Conference, and therefore Mm -hmm. we came up with these four pillars um, through which uh, we are hosting hearings today on with the goal of presenting an agenda for the veto session. So... And I know that this has been a really collaborative process. Um, Multiple members are chairing different committees and subcommittees around all this work, so everyone really has ownership in it. So how has that process been divided up among the members? And, and, you know, why is that level of collaboration so critical, you think? Well, I think it's important that everyone knows that this is a unified effort. And it's important to, you know, that when we took a look at these pillars, which were not difficult to come up with. I mean, when you, if you live the, if you live as an, a, a Black American, um, you know what your challenges have been, what your parents' challenges were, what your grandparents' challenges were, and and they always stem around healthcare or um, no, not highly educated 
or no job opportunities. So it's very easy to come up with being arrested by police more than anyone else, racial profiling. So mm -hmm. all of these things is what you already know. So it's very easy to come up with our four pillars, which are um, criminal justice reform, violence reduction, and police accountability is our first pillar. Our second pillar is education and workforce development. Our third pillar is economic access, equity and opportunity. And our fourth pillar is healthcare and human services. And I thought it was important for us to split the pillars up so that uh, we have co-chairs, so that there's a senator mm -hmm. and a representative that is co-chair of each pillar and um, to set up working groups for each pillar so that we can continue to develop ideas. We began to collaborate and looking at some of the past um, legislative initiatives that were passed by both chambers and signed by the governor that were never implemented by the state. We took a look at wow. um, all of the, the things that we thought we'd done that were implemented that were not, that didn't have any sanctions or any, um, no watchdog, so they were not happening, or there was this new system created of waivers, just just file a waiver, you know, don't, you don't have to meet the requirement that the law is asking you to do, just file a waiver. So we began to learn of all these ways that um, the system has been getting around the efforts that we were making as Black Caucus members over the years to help um, with our constituency. So we thought, okay, collaboration is very important because everything is interconnected in some way. And in order to fix inequities, that we have to fix a number of them at one time in order for the efforts to work. And so that's how these pillars were created. I, honestly, I couldn't sleep at night. Things would pop up in my mind. I'd just hop up and write them <laughs> on a sheet of paper. <laughs> a pad by the bed <laughs> until it was all shaped You never out. know, yeah, when a good idea is going to pop up. So always mm -hmm. have the pen and pad ready. So why, why these four pillars from your perspective? And, you know, how, how do they or how can they end up having the greatest impact on addressing these inequities and racism in our own government here and the laws and policies that guide them. Well, I because I'm sure that, you probably could have had ten pillars, but you know you gotta oh, know. gotta focus on the ones where you can have impact, right? The most impact. yeah. And, and just the way our government process is set up. So when you think about the ways that government interacts, you know, with people's lives, I thought that we could fit each of those things in the four pillars that we've identified. And through our criminal justice reform, violence reduction, and police accountability pillar along, you're looking at so many areas of inequities as we talk about police. And I know a lot of people are just honing in on uh, all of the things that the police are doing that um, black people are being killed by, but we have to look at everything, their use of force, their training, mm -hmm. uh, all these things that go into making a police officer accountable, right? And then we've mm -hmm. got to look at violence reduction. There's still a lot of high crimes within our, our own communities, and we've been supporting um, 
different state programs to help rid this violence, but it's still so significant in hiring our communities. And what's the root of it? You're looking at a group of uneducated, out of work people um, um, that sit at home on their face, uh, face in this uh, technology here and, and create, I guess, beefs with one another. And then they go out and meet up and it's no longer just gang activity um, in my mind. And it's out of control. Um, and, and it's the innocent standbyers that are that are being harmed. And so it wasn't yeah. difficult to come up with uh, the first pillar. Neither was it difficult to come up with uh, educational workforce development, which I just stated. They're, un they're unemployed. They're uneducated. We're looking at no access to equity. Difficult to get a small loan. You can't, if you're an entrepreneur, you have no access to start your own business. We've been locked out of the procurement process, which generates mm -hmm. billions of dollars in state government. Affordable housing. We could barely live in the city of Chicago at this point. If you're a minimum yeah. wage worker, you cannot afford to pay rent and take care of two children on the income that was there um, provide prior to us raising the minimum wage, of course, to where it is today. And we're still working on that. But a livable wage was not uh, available to essential workers. And so when we talk about um, health care and human services, I mean, just look at the pandemic itself. Um, you know, and, and it's it's one of those oh, yeah. things that, yeah, just the coronavirus said what we've been saying, you know, and so now it's in the midst of all this uncertainty and loss, we're still seeing the murders of black people at the hands of the police. Racism is, is still a pandemic of its own. And yeah. it is so ingrained in our system that it could not stop as we face this huge health care crisis. So we saw black people succumb to the virus at disproportionate rates. Our children. Unbelievable rates. Unbelievable <laughs> rates. And our children right now are struggling through online learning and the economic loss in areas where people had very little to lose already. So how can we not do something? How can we right. not take this moment when there are so many people around this world that are are in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. It is that right there, Becky. Um, during all of these parades, I just have to say this, during all of these parades I've been a part of and, and people I, I, I walk side by side with because we're in a pandemic, they just didn't look like me. And it brought tears to my eyes, the signs that I saw, the, the inclusion <laughs> and the diversity of all the people. I, it really made my heart pour out. And I was like, oh my, maybe this is an opportunity right. to get something done. Yes. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard to see a silver lining when there's been so many people affected. I mean, across the board, except for that, there's this awakening around racism and the Black Lives Matter movement that I just feel has not caught on before in the way that it has now. And mm -hmm. it's, it's making people have very uncomfortable but important conversations and I think like you said like you're seeing all sorts of people I mean now you're seeing most of these protests are being led by white people and I think mm -hmm. a lot more white people are realizing that this is their problem to fix in many ways so but you know the work that you guys are doing 
with the Legislative Black Caucus can have like such um, immediate systemic impacts. So, um, you know, so what are like the next steps in this process? I know that you're in the middle of doing these public hearings and you have like a couple more left. What happens after you get through these public hearings? Where does it go from there? Well, you know, Becky, so we did release the first pillar and the second. Um, We are on subject matter hearing number four under the first pillar, and tomorrow is uh, three for education. Uh, We will release the third pillar on this week on Thursday. I'm super excited about it. And we Mm -hmm. will begin having subject matter hearings around affordable, around housing and gentrification and things that affect the economic stability of how black people live. And so um, they will, too, begin to have subject matter hearings. And then our fourth and final pillar of healthcare and human services will be released shortly after the third pillar. And so once Mm -hmm. we... We, the idea around these pillars was so that we could help our colleagues, we can help ourselves first, of course, and our right. colleagues to make informed decisions on the legislation that we will draft and present to our colleagues in the fall veto session. I wanted to make sure without a doubt that it was data-driven, that it was based on best practices, that we could look to nuances that currently exist in statute that we need to make some adjustments to. And so, and then I wanted our colleagues, of course, to take this journey with us and so that they could too can hear from experts and advocates and, and can learn from the research and the data so that when they see our initiatives, it's not that we just came up with some bright ideas, but that we've spent right. the last three, four months learning what other states have done in in certain areas and and looking to the experts and not just go from our emotion or from personal experience, but but with true facts. And so our goal is that by the time we get to November, our colleagues would have had that opportunity to gain full insight to the Black experience and have a deeper Mm -hmm. understanding a deeper understanding for not only why these proposals are necessary, but why people are so angry and exhausted by racism in our country. That's what my hope is, that they can hear it for themselves and be able to understand why we're pushing these initiatives. Yeah, I feel like you really need to leverage this moment in time and not let it just become a chapter that just is kind of forgotten because it's 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 been a rare opportunity. Um, I think during the pandemic, especially, it's almost like the pandem- pandemic's created an environment where you've been able to like really capture people's attention and their hearts and minds because um, you know we're we're really restricted in terms of what we can do and where we can go. And I think people are just more captivated by Heather's there's opportunity to captivate them and really engage them. So I'm certainly hopeful that this will, all this work that, that, that you all are doing will really come to fruition. And so, you know, when all is said and done and you present this agenda to the legislature, I mean, I like to think that it's likely these policies that you're going to recommend and these other changes will be embraced. I mean, at least I think they will. Is that 
your expectation and, you know, or, and do you think that there's, you know, or, or what is your hope for the impact that your work will have, say, you know, five years from now? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I just see that the reality of it is that a lot of these issues and proposals, they're not, they're not new. And they won't be new to many members. We had a Senate Democrat caucus where we shared our presentations and our proposals with our colleagues. And it's like, oh, yeah, we heard that was the bill you tried to pass three years ago, or that's the bill that comes up every year. You know, it's like the the racism that exists, they're a part of it. And some of them, and they've seen it, and they've been a part of it, uh, or the bill will pass the Senate and then the it's held in the rules in the House Committee. And so we learned just from them and their reactions that, oh, we get it, you know, many of them said just last week. But I still, you know, want to make sure that they're empowered with the information. So I'm hoping that now there's a, a greater will for them to listen and understand on behalf of the public. You know, our colleagues will be more willing to support our plan um, than they have in the past if they listen to their own constituency. One of my colleagues from Lake County, she stood up and, well, when things first happened, she called me and said, Kimberly, I'm with you, but I just don't know if I should do a march or a protest because I don't know where my constituents are on this. And within the next three days, some of her constituents had organized a parade, a protest parade. And she she sent me pictures and it was tons. It was huge. And she's like, oh my God, they're in support of it. So she did a survey and she found out Mm -hmm. that 60% 65% of her constituents are in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, and she is a white suburban Lake County district. And so, you know, I felt a lot of support and wanting to understand, they want to understand many of my colleagues, and that's what's making me feel like we're on the right path and that this opportunity does need to cease itself. And so as far as the impact of our work, you know, I would say if it changes the future, one black child is worth it, but I'm not going to give you that cliche. Right. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that we're looking, we're looking to build up the black community in a way that we are self-sustained. We want to see Black-owned businesses thrive. We want to increase our Black college graduates. We want a strong Black workforce. And we want a healthy Black community. We want healthy Black families. And so that's the goal for the next five years, 10 years, to be able to look back and say, those four pillars, that that Black Caucus agenda to rid systemic racism with the support of our colleagues and our communities across the state made this happen for Black people. And overall, everyone does better. We all do well. And, and I believe that's what we'll see. Well, I think that given that made it very public that, you know, once you get to the end of this year um, and veto is the end of November and the beginning of December of that, you know, you're going to be moving on from your position as chair of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. And I have to imagine that if, you know, after all this work and energy that you guys are able to get this done, it is, it is certainly like the highest note possible that you could leave on. 
Oh, I know. Can you imagine that? Just when I thought running for Senate president was like, I can't believe that this little black girl who came in with three strikes against her and who just held her head down, who was often invisible, who was labeled as an angry black woman now has a chance to be the Senate president. I thought that in itself was a huge, you know, difference. And now being the most senior member and the Senate majority leader, I thought, oh, I can't, I can't do any better than this, but lo and behold, (laughs) (laughs) oh my God, the sheer opportunity to really impact the lives for the very reason why I was labeled the angry black woman just does my soul. I mean, my soul sings being able to fight this fight and being encouraged by so many people that do not look like me. It means the world to me. So I'm really working hard to deliver this. I really hope that we can impact the black lives and black communities and, um, And I hope that I can retire and feel good about my journey and the time that I spend as a state legislator. Well, we're not talking about retiring or retiring quite yet, but we are talking about (laughs) at least, at least, I don't want to make any news on this podcast, you know, but um, (laughs) at least least the end of your tenure. Right, right, right. No nonsense yet. No nonsense yet. No announcements, but I will be working with the Black Caucus members. I will still remain an active member of the Black Caucus. I still will work to ensure that we put oversight in place and that there is a a a watchdog um i'm looking to create a a commission of sorts to do that and i'll be working to make sure that you know the task force that we set up some of the commissions whatever we do to get us to the best result that i'll see that through well it all is incredibly amazing to just watch from the outside and to see you and all of your fellow caucus members just put so much into this. And I'm excited to see the outcome. And, um, you know, I told you at the beginning of this, so it just fly by and now we're at the end. So this is what I have to say. Kimberly, thank you for taking the time to join us. <laughs> and, but you gave us some really powerful, frank insight. I mean, into all of this incredible work. And I really do thank you and all the members of your caucus for leading this. I really think we're going to be a better state ultimately for it. And I certainly look forward to, um, you know, being an ally um, in the strongest way possible and helping to do whatever part I can. So thank you for making the time to be here today. Oh, well, thank you, Becky, again for having me. And thank, uh, thank you to your production team as well. Thanks so much. <laughs> And I am going to thank them as well in my in my outro, which is, as always, the broadcast is brought to you by C-Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm, bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. And thank you again to our sponsors, Evolver, and our podcast home, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Benetsumi, Chipsy Project. And I'd say a production assist by Kyler Sumter from the C-Strategies team. Uh, To learn more about C-Strategies and the broadcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter at C-Strategies Shy.
So come, let the world.